across campus, online, and on 12:51 a.m. This, this, this is your student radio station. Welcome back. Um, thanks very much for tuning in today. It's fantastic to be on Raw this afternoon. Fantastic to be back on the airwaves after we were here the same time in Term 1. Um, of course, our thanks to everyone at Raw for supporting us and giving us this slot again. I'm really grateful for the opportunity to present another primetime two-hour show across the whole of this term. A lot to look forward to. Some new things we'll be trying out in the next few weeks as well. So really looking forward to trying that out. And of course, thanks as well to everyone who has been tuning in, whether you've been tuning in live on Raw 1251 AM, whether you've been listening to us on any of our other listening platforms on Mixcloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and all of our other streaming sites. Far too many for me to mention for the fact I don't actually know all of them. But there we go. And also, um, thanks to everyone as well who watched um, our live stream on Facebook last week. Of course, we live streamed whilst um, Raw was down and not broadcasting last week. That video, actually, coincidentally, is now our most viewed video, or most viewed video on Facebook that we've ever done, um, with double the amount of any of our live streams we did in Term 3 last year and at the start of Term 1 last year. So thank you so much for everyone who's been engaging with us. I'm really looking forward to be back on Raw for the next few weeks and talking through some of some of what is inevitably going to be a very dramatic three months. Of course, we're right in the midst of arguably the worst part of the coronavirus pandemic at the moment, really typified by the high amount of cases and deaths that we sadly have at the moment, but arguably as well, the most optimistic point of the pandemic as well. We are rolling out the vaccine at the moment and we're seeing that as more people are getting vaccinated, that perhaps there is a way out. It'll be very interesting to see as we go forward. Of course, we are hoping that these restrictions, people are saying we'll be done by the summer, we'll be back to normal by autumn. I hope we can have a normal third year and I hope we can get past this pandemic. And I think there's a lot of cause for optimism. But that is, of course, not the only news. We're going to be talking about the end of the Trump presidency, plus the start of the Biden presidency. We're going to be talking a lot about that in the first hour of our show. We're also going to be filling in you on all the latest news and views from campus, whether that be in relation to measures taken by the university in regards to coronavirus and the news last week that slates are returning to SU elections. Of course, SU elections being our favourite things on the student calendar, no doubt about that. And then following on from that, we'll be talking about arguably the biggest debate of the week. Um, Conservatives got themselves in a bit wrapped up yesterday over an opposition day debate on potentially removing the £20 universal credit uplift. We'll be talking about that later. And finally, a bit of news from Germany as well. Um, the potential new Chancellor, Armin Laschet, he was elected leader of the CDU over the weekend. We'll be talking about the impact of him and what it means for a post-Merkel Germany. Now, of course, you don't want to listen to my voice for the entire show, for I fear that may bore you just a little bit. So let's welcome in some of the guests on today's show. So let's start off with our perennial guest, our perennial figure here on The Alternative View. It is, of course, our wonderful head of news, Enoch Fukungu. A very good afternoon. Good afternoon, Cam. Thanks for having me on. Now, it's fantastic to have you back. Now, um, of course, it's in your role as head of news, it's not just obviously coming on the show and supporting us, but it's supporting us in a very sort of mentoring, kind of helpful guidance way. And um, I, I, I wanted to put this to you in front of all the viewers, viewers, listeners right now, because... Um, you have said to me that you believe that I 
have been stealing the best parts of John Oliver um, in the production of this show. Um, I'm intrigued. I mean, does this is this show like the? Is it the Tonight Show he does, John Oliver? Last week, last week tonight. Last week tonight. That's it. I I I I feel I feel I've taken a massive L there. But yeah, the the alternative view is is this really the British last week tonight? Um, I you know, no comment. No comment. I'm not going on the record so, anything in regards to that. I mean, to be fair, I would happily take compliments with regards to being like John Oliver, because I think John Oliver is a fantastic political satirist, very in tune with popular culture. I like to think I'm the same. So I would happily take comparisons to that. But it's great to have you back, Enoch. Let's bring on someone else who is known to uh, many of our listeners here on The Alternative View, someone who's been on many of our live streams. But it's the first time he's come on our radio show. Ollie Cranham Young, a very good afternoon to you. Hello, Cal. How are you? I'm doing very well. Respect guests as good as I can do in lockdown oh, at the moment. Of course. How 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 are you? I mean, how how was your Christmas? What was it like yeah. back in lockdown? Yeah, I mean, Christmas was, I suppose, as good as it can be, really. You know, given the amount of or the lack of restrictions that were made so i mean it was it was very different but i suppose it was different for everybody i guess and uh, i mean the new year's it's not started great has it really but i mean the, the idea that okay, come 2021 things were going to get better straight away it's it dumbfounded it's still there's light at the end of the tunnel of course but things are still looking pretty bleak i think everyone would agree yeah there was a very optimistic school of thought that thought as soon as we get the vaccine out everything would just get good but of course people in government were saying well it's going to get worse before it gets better. I think we're all hoping it gets better very soon. Well, it's great to have you back. And for the first time on The Alternative View, um, not just the first time that he's come on the show, but also our, our first postgrads. So I'm delving further into the depths of um, Warwick Uni, which I'm, I'm happy. I'm ha really happy that we're doing that. So Adam Gravely, good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Cam. Thank you very much for having me. Now, it's fantastic to have you on. And I guess same question as well that I just gave to Ollie there. I mean, what has lockdown been like for you, Christmas in lockdown? And of course, as well, you're a postgrad. And I know a lot of people have been talking about the learning experience for undergrads, but not many people have really heard what it's like for postgrads at the moment. So can you talk a little bit about that as well? Yeah, so um, lockdown for me has been as best, I suppose, as anybody can expect from lockdown, just trying to keep away and uh, as safe as uh, we possibly can at home. Um, getting a bit harder with online delivery slots right at this moment in time. But apart from that, um, I, I'm managing. Uh, in terms of the learning experience, um, from my understanding of postgrads, again, it's been mixed. Uh, I would say my experience has been pretty good um, in politics and international studies. Uh, we've had, uh, like in most of it's been online, we did manage to start in person at the start of the year, which was fantastic. Um, but now we're, we're going to be online for the foreseeable future. Uh, but the provision has been great and the staff support has been fantastic. Um, I am aware though that there will be other students who would disagree with that and other students have probably had very different uh, learning experiences. So I think there is something for us to really reflect on how do we try to take the best experiences that some people have had, but also look at, well, why hasn't it been good for others? Because we're going to need to think about what, how do we recover from this pandemic? 
Well, absolutely. And of course, we'll come on to talk a little bit more about the learning experience shortly. But um, just one last thing. Um, before you became a postgrad, you worked at John Lewis and you were talking about um, the difficulty with online delivery. So, so do you have a hotline to Andy Street or indeed anyone now working at Waitrose where you could just kind of bypass that almost? I do not have the ability to bypass anything. Um, I don't have a hotline to Andy. I do have, uh, I am in contact with people at John Lewis and Waitrose um, who I used to work with, um, but uh, they don't have any sway over the choosing of delivery slots. So I will um, I will join the queue like any other customer. Obviously, they're having to reserve certain amount of slots in Waitrose for uh, those clinically extremely vulnerable customers who are shielding, which I think is the absolutely the right thing to do um, to just try and protect those most vulnerable. Uh, but no, there'll be no special treatment for me. And I think that's only right. I, th I think I would agree with you there although I guess to take every advantage that could come to you would be a nice thing but of course supermarket workers key workers at the moment a big thank you to all the work that every key worker is doing right now in keeping this country going in these difficult times and now obviously a lot has happened over the last week so as we did last term I thought this would be the perfect opportunity to just break it down what has happened in the last week in 60 seconds so starting in three two one so coronavirus cases continue to rise in this country sadly to the worst in terms of as we've seen in recent weeks but the worst rate of death so far 1610 people died yesterday on tuesday that is the highest within 28 days of a positive test taking deaths above 90,000, um, but also 33 and a half thousand cases so sometimes cases are starting to come down but slightly more positive news i guess you can say with the vaccination program Nearly 4.3 million people have received their coronavirus vaccine now, and we're starting to vaccinate the over 70s, clinically extremely vulnerable, and hoping to meet that February deadline. It seems that we can meet that mid-February deadline that will take us out of this lockdown, perhaps into less restrictive measures. There's a debate going on when that should be and what that should look like. Um, outside of coronavirus, outside of the UK as well. So Alexei Navalny was released from hospital in Berlin at the weekend, taken back to Russia following his poisoning with Novichok. He was arrested on arrival. And of course, at the end of this show, Joe Biden will be inaugurated as the US president. And that is just a highlight of some of the news this week in the last 60 seconds. Of course, this is the last two hours of the Trump presidency. I feel something quite sentimental um, doing this right now, which, yeah, I'll, I'll run with that. It's a slightly sentimental moment that we can host this show on Raw in the last two hours of the Trump presidency. So. We will be back talking about, well, what has is the legacy of the Trump presidency? That to come, but in the style of John Oliver, first, this. Music. Welcome back to another week of Psychedemics. Hello, everybody. You're listening to The Vinny Show. You are listening to Rockstar. I'm backstage at Casper. We're starting to go. Hello, guys. Hello. Hello. Sports. There's a team spirit going oh. on behind it. You're all rooting for each other. Oh, yeah. Good job. Yeah. Arts. The idea of popular films being nominated for Oscars. I just think the style that Marvel has made has just mm. put them like way above. Speech. You must get to the Mass and Stats building using three different modes of transport. Oh my god, there's a trolley. It's Whee! really all about like educating, networking, and sharing our stories. I think the SU has a really uh, important role in engaging students with politics. News. Good evening and welcome to the big decision. Ben and Larissa tied. This is your student radio station. This is Raw 1250. 51 a.m. Classic tickets, classic bells, individual. 
latest blockbusters, experience a film projection, or the chance to join a great franchise team and see movies for free, and join Warwick Street Cinema today. Go to filmsoft.warwick.ac.uk. Across campus, online, and on 12.51am. This, this, this is your student radio station. A lot of people, it's fair to say, have lost their heads when talking about um, President Trump for the last few years. He has been, it's fair to say, one of the most consequential, perhaps, well, I think undeniably one of the most controversial presidents in the 231-year history of the American Republic. The first president to be impeached twice was something he managed to achieve last week when he was impeached following um, the Capitol Hill riot um, a couple of weeks ago. And of course, today, as we said earlier, we are currently broadcasting within the last two hours of the Trump presidency. So I feel in the only way I feel he would like it if we mentioned him for a substantial amount of time in these two hours. I can't dedicate the whole show to Donald Trump because, frankly, I feel we would all lose our sanity. But we're going to give some time now, obviously, to talk about the legacy of the last four years, because I don't think many people were expecting a normal presidency in terms of someone that was going to go in, be a very conventional US president, someone you'd imagine to respect a lot of the norms, the institutions and follow the procedures as many presidents on both sides of the aisle had done before Trump. That was something that he really distinguished himself out as the very much the populist, anti-politics candidate, man of the people. But it's fair to say there's been a lot over the last four years. I mean, just to think about it, help me if I can't, if I don't list all the things. So within his first week in office, we had the travel ban. We had um, North Korea dominated a lot of his first year, dominated most of his presidency. We had um, relate the fall of the relationship with Iran and the tax cuts. I, I feel I'm missing some obvious ones. Obviously, the response to coronavirus. Um, help, help me. I'm just, just is there anything, anything that's really stood out to you in the Trump presidency? Um, I obviously. Um... Immigration, uh, immigration policies along the Mexican border and things we've seen with uh, ice detainment, primary separation policies. Of, co- of course, that, that big, beautiful wall, at least the pavement that was built along the, in, yeah. The, he the, went to the Alamo. The wall. Went, yeah, the I think the built. symbol of his presidency, he went to the Alamo to try and show off, you know, this beautiful wall that he had built. Um, it's arguably the second most famous visit to the Alamo after... Ozzy Osbourne, where indeed he peed in the middle of an Alamo. It's a, it's a great story. And I feel Donald Trump couldn't top that, which I don't think he would like. But yeah, yeah um, the Donald Trump presidency is over. It's been massively consequential, whether you're thinking of, well, economics, um, political divisions in the US, arguably one of the most divisive presidents, presidencies in United States history. Foreign policy has been a very checkered record, perhaps, President Trump, though in many cases cited as one of his more successful points. That's that's really before we go into individual parts of the presidency, let's sort of stay quite general for now. Ollie, has the Trump presidency been a success or a failure? Um, I'm going to, as no surprise to anyone, I'm going to say on the whole, a resounding failure. And why so? Oh, I mean, where do you even start with Trump? I mean, it's just, I often feel like you can even, you can think of it in so many different respects, but I just think, you know, his constant use of Twitter rather than, it almost felt like he was using Twitter rather than actually doing the job. I mean, you can start with that, can't you? The fact that he 
completely at times. Or, using social media is not a bad thing, you know, trying to directly communicate you know, with what, the people you represent. It just felt, it came across as well that he was completely uninterested in the process of governing as well, which, I mean, a lot of people leveled at him before he became president. Like, if this man does become president, he's not going to be interested in detail or anything like that. And I think that's true. But I think his terrible handling of, handling of the coronavirus pandemic as well. I mean, the suggestion that people should inject themselves with bleach was quite something, wasn't it? I think everyone would agree. I mean, I just think, and a lot of his kind of, a lot of people put his success down to the relatively strong, you know, economy that he's presided over up until coronavirus. But again, something like that, how much of that do you devote to Trump himself? How much of it can you actually, is credit actually, or should be given to the previous administration? I mean, he often, I think the one stat he used more than anything was the low unemployment figures, I think, the 50-year low. But again, that in itself is only one measure of economic performance. So I, th- I feel like, I mean, for me, I think the thing he's probably most remembered for is the fact that he got three nominations just to the Supreme Court. I think that's going to be his biggest legacy. But I think, I mean, I would say it's been a resigning failure on the whole. I mean, then you've got all his association with the alt-right. I mean, I mean I'm mean, i going to stop talking now because I could just keep going. But I feel like you've got... Uh, 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 the, the Trump presidency is something we can't really put into a very... Too broad. So much you can talk about. I mean, you raised a lot of points there. Obviously, the Supreme Court. Now, that by many conservatives. I mean, many conservatives have had a very uneasy relationship with Donald Trump. They've not seen him necessary to embody a lot of the values that they typically represent, a sort of strong emphasis on traditional moral values, free market economics as well. But on the point of getting conservatives nominated to the Supreme Court, you could say that has been arguably one of the saving graces for Donald Trump's presidency and something that will define America for a generation. I mean, yep. Adam, what what do you think to that? Yeah, so on the Supreme Court, I suppose that's the one area where you could arguably say that Donald Trump has had some successes. Um, I mean, I disagree with his Supreme Court appointments, but he did manage to get through su- Supreme Court appointments uh, that the Republicans um, were generally supportive of. And it's not just Supreme Court. The fact is that uh, uh, Donald Trump has appointed more federal judges, I believe, than any president in recent times. So the the swinging of the uh, judicial system to the right in America has certainly been an avenue uh, in Trump's favour. But uh, if not necessarily well, we say Sean's favour, we look at the elections and the fact that his claims for the rigged elections were going to said courts who overwhelmingly rejected all of his claims. So Trump may not be feeling that was in his favour, but certainly within uh, conservative circles, that was perhaps one of his few successful policies in a background of what has been a failure, which has uh, resulted in in these claims of electoral fraud and seeing the horrific scenes at the Capitol. Well, of course, that the scenes at the Capitol a couple of weeks ago, I think, were a real kind of stain on the Trump presidency and a stain really to watch on the United States as well. Indeed, one of the things that was most interesting from that was um, the couple of news reporters have been going into the United States in the last couple of weeks. And there was one news reporter for Sky News who said, I normally only go to war zones and I've never covered a peaceful transition of power before, but he sent off to the United States. I'll leave it at that. But um, I guess you make an interesting point there about the elections and Enoch. I mean, obviously, Donald Trump disputed the results of the elections or all of the cases got thrown out in the Supreme Court. But there were he did secure 
technically the second highest vote in ever in the US history, secured any the most votes of any president in any election before him. And he also secured a significantly higher number of votes from, for example, Latino voters. The Cuban-Americans in Florida were seen to carry him over a higher proportion of votes amongst African-Americans as well. So in many ways, you could say that Donald Trump has almost broadened his appeal in this election. And that way, it could be seen as a success. I mean, it, it could be some success if your definition of succeeding is losing. Um, Donald Trump, but, I but mean, certainly in, his, in broadening his appeal as such. I mean, these were people, you know, four years ago, particularly Latino voters, you know, the rhetoric that Donald Trump had in 2016 about building the wall and calling Mexican rapists and criminals. Yet more people have voted for him than they did for Mitt Romney, than they did for John McCain. Yeah, well, I think, well, I think in, in large part, sort of two factors. One, it's been it's been over ten, it's been about it's over ten years since um, since you know McCain was running. America's grown a bit since then. There's just more voters. That's just how. I mean, but it's a proportion yeah. then. That's a, a proportion. Like, yeah, I, I will accept this election has activated something in American people. Donald Trump. Um, you mentioned something earlier that Donald Trump was the most controversial president in American history. Um, I would dispute that. Donald Trump's actually the least controversial president in American history. Most Americans agree on what they think about Donald Trump, and what they think is they don't like him. He's the least popular president. million people voted he's, for him more than any other popular, president before him. He's the least popular president um, by polling since polling began. So since World War II, the Donald one Trump was the least the last popular president. More popular than any other president. Uh, well, by, this, is by, this is by Gallup polling, which everyone basically, even, even Republicans can accept that as valid polling. He averaged out on 41%. He's leaving office on 29% of approval rating, right? People did not like Donald Trump. What people do like, and this is my grand fear of the 2020 election, people do like his money. Um, and back, back in about uh, May time last year, uh, Congress passed, the, I, think, I think it was the CARES Act. I think that was the CARES Act, which approved the 2000, not that it wasn't 2000, it was- $2,000. Yeah, $2,000 Trump checks, which went to various American households. And they also improved the $600 boost to unemployment benefit. And this probably had a radically transformative effect on people's lives. And we know for a fact that that made people think Donald Trump, that improved people's opinion of Donald Trump. The fact that Congress, unrelated to him, except that he demanded his name was put on them, passed these checks, that that boosted his approval ratings. Um, In every other instance, when people you ask about Donald Trump, they basically go, I don't like him very much. Donald Trump should have won this election. He had... Going into election, he had a very strong economy. Um, he has party fully behind him. He had unified them. Um, the Democrats seemed basically incapable of squabbling. He was actually out there campaigning where Joe Biden was basically forced to just campaign on Zoom, or like a Microsoft Teams reading, like as a seminar tutor. Um, and yet, with all these advantages, he simply could not bring it together. At the end of the day, he just wasn't the guy. Um, he, Donald Trump was more social media influencer than he ever was president. Um, and as you can see now, the fact that he took all his social media away from it, it's like he's lost all his power. It's like someone, someone finally threw a, bu- a bucket of water over the wicked, the wicked witch, and she's melting away. That's what we're watching happen right now. I'm getting real vibes thinking of the Wizard of Oz here. Although, of course, in Wicked, the witch doesn't melt; she stays alive. But anyway, that's that's I that's mean, something. Which is also green, not orange. But I mean, we, we can't get anything right. That 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 is a completely different aside for another day. But I guess I guess there is a point you make. Obviously, if you look at the impeachment last week, you had ten. Republican congressman votes for the impeachment, including Liz Cheney, the former, the, the, the daughter even of um, 
former Vice President Dick Cheney. Indeed, Donald Trump seems to have turned a lot of the Republican establishment, you know, the Romneys, the McCains, the Cheneys, the Bushes, really don't like Donald Trump. And I mean, that could have been his appeal very much to his base who see him as the anti-establishment candidate, that that was what got him in in the first place. Um, One thing we haven't talked about a lot and potentially has quite an impact on the world more broadly is his impact on foreign policy. And again, arguably some notable failures, perhaps his dealings with North Korea could come under scrutiny, perhaps his environmental policies pulling out of the Paris Climate Agreement, something that a lot of people disagree with. But Donald Trump, it's fair to say, rewrote many norms where foreign policy is concerned, most notably in the Middle East, the idea that you can't get a recognition of Israel by the Arab states without a deal um, with Palestine. That was completely upended by the Trump administration. And now we're seeing through the Abraham Accords, increased recognition of Israel by Arab states and something that Donald Trump has himself been keen to emphasize. I mean, Enoch, what do you have to say going back to you on um, this foreign policy success? I mean, is it a success for Donald Trump? Well, I, I, you said, I think there, when you think about presidents who broke the barrier of getting Arab countries to recognize Israel, um, we have to think about, remember poor Jimmy or Jimmy Carter in Camp David who negotiated the peace deal between Egypt and Israel. Um, and if Donald Trump wants to compare his foreign policy successor to Jimmy Carter, um, he's, he's welcome to, but I don't think that would get him much acclaim. Um, what comes to mind most of Donald Trump's foreign policy is in recently Uganda had their elections. My father's currently in my father and mother are currently in Uganda. Um, because I've watched my grandmother pass over the holidays and they were there for a funeral and helped with the agents there. Um, Ugandan elections are a nightmare because the, the dictator who runs the country always wins because he's a dictator. Um, and they're always riots. And I called my father to make sure he's okay. And he called me and he laughed. He said, Enoch, I'd rather be here right now than in America. Um, what Donald Trump has done, he's managed to so destroy American reputation as a defender of American democracy and sort of this, the golden city on the hill that in Africa, in a Ugandan election, you can laugh about American elections like you're superior. And that's, not, that's what my always, that's going to be my takeaway forever. I mean, the Turkish embassy after the capital riots um, issued a phrase basically saying, you know, there's large political demonstrations at the moment. Watch out, don't get caught up in them. The sort of thing the Americans would say for a country like Uganda, for example. I mean, it's a real, real reverse of the tables there. Um, Adam, really the same question on you. I know you had something to say on foreign policy. Yeah, so um, in one breath, it, the foreign policy could have been worse. Like in, we think about the fact that he's not really engaged uh, troops in military conflict. Um, he's actually bringing troops out of military conflict, albeit there doesn't seem to be a strategic plan in his thinking around foreign policy. What we do know is when he was in the original election, he wanted to end phony wars. And as such, he seems to have actually kept saying, well, look, we're not going to be engaging military personnel in combat. And he is then reversing it. But in other areas of his foreign policy, um, we've seen, well, we saw attempts to try and bring North Korea out from the cold, which fell completely flat. I think that could have been a good thing if we'd actually managed to bring North Korea uh, to uh, stop being a rogue state and actually start playing by the international norms, because then uh, the global um, teams could then come together and say, well, actually, how can we uh, help the people in North Korea who were being oppressed, but obviously that fell through. And then we had his attempts with Russia and the fact that he'd wanted to have the Russian president visit the US, that failed. 
Um, we've seen uh, Middle East. Uh, yes, there have been the Abraham Accords, but uh, we've also seen this policy where he actually moved the US embassy to Jerusalem, which has really inflamed tensions um, on, on all sides of the argument. And uh, we just now need to ensure that with the Middle East peace process, there is a, a really clear open line for dialogue. And this is going to be something Biden's going to have to pick up on, a really clear line for dialogue from all sides uh, to, to ensure that there aren't tensions and ensure that this move towards a two-state solution in the Israel-Palestine conflict is maintained. Well, we will be talking about Biden in a bit, but this is really the end of our section on Donald Trump and the Trump presidency. We'll move, as I said, we're moving on to Biden very shortly. But um, if you could sum up the Trump presidency then in one sentence, what what would that one sentence be? So, Ollie, what what would it be? You're really putting me on the spot here now. I mean, <laughs> I, I had to come I to think, someone first. I I'm actually gonna I'll do. I'm gonna. Can I do it in one word? Because that on. word is just. I'm just gonna. That word to me is Twitter. <laughs> uh, no word, perhaps even truer, Enoch. I'm so glad it's over. <laughs> and Adam. Division. Well, that is that is the Trump presidency, everyone. Um, America 45. I, you get like Hawaii 5 You do like America 4-5 is over. I, I know. I, that was really bad. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna try and claim any credit for that, I'll just sweep it under the rug. But yes, the Trump presidency is over in about an hour in a bit's time. But of course, there's another presidency, America 4-6. Joe Biden comes in next. I'm going to have to stop doing that because it is it's something I can't take credit for, for the fact it's simply awful. But yes, um, Joe Biden becomes um, president at five o'clock. So we'll be talking about what to expect from the Biden administration. But first, this. Looking for a bite to eat at the Warwick SU? Daily specials and fine dining experience at the brand new Canopy. Karaoke, pub grub and lager on top at the Dirty Duck. Salad and sarnies to go in the bread oven. Or a latte link up at Curiosity. There's something to suit any taste and any budget. And if you've got a big night ahead of the copper room, start it right at Tea Bar. With speciality cocktails. Best stock prices. And our expertly stocked bar overlooking the piazza. At Warwick SU Outlets, there's something to satisfy every taste. Your breakfast, the feel-good way to start your day. This is Breakfast Radio for Warwick students, by Warwick students. Playing the feel-good hits and brightening up your morning. Plus, we have the best gaps, games and giveaways to freshen up your stagecoach commute. Listen to Raw Breakfast every day from 8am. Across campus, online and on 12.51am. This, this, this is your student radio station. Joe Biden, as I said earlier, is going to become the 46th president of the United States in about an hour's time. And, well, if the Trump presidency was one of the most consequential, one of the most controversial, there's a lot of hope, certainly, from many political commentators that the Biden presidency will be a return to the normal sort of institutional processes in the United States, not just in the US, but um, abroad as well. But of course, the Biden administration will have been impacted by the last four years, and many of the things that have come from that will be a carryover, and how Biden responds to that will definitely be an important factor. So let's really start off just talking about the Biden administration. And I guess a lot of people are, are feeling perhaps optimistic. I mean, do you share that optimism, Enoch? Let's come to you first. 
Yeah, I think Joe Biden faces a very different world to one Obama would have faced when he first took the job in 2008. Um, I, I am optimistic. I am hopeful. I, I am obviously, I'm sorry, I'm sorry if anyone out there disagrees. I'm sort of a left-wing person, apologies. Um, so I do sort of like it when left-wing progressive governments get installed in power. Um, of course, installed, I say, because Joe Biden, of course, stole the election. We all helped to win. <laughs> of, um, of course, of course. There's yeah. many votes. Um, there's 11, yeah. 12,000 votes in Georgia, right. for example. Yeah. Now, now, that he, now that he's been installed, now he's he's officially president, we can just say it now. What, what's Trump going to do? Uh, arrest us? Oh, scary. Um, yeah, I, I think some of the stuff we've seen mentioned so far, are Biden's committed to rejoin Paris Pete. The, I keep saying Paris Peace Accord. And so it's, I feel like I'm back in my GCSEs. Um, the Paris um, Climate Agreement. Um, the new plan is just now to a massive immigration reform, including a partisanship, and maybe some agreed the pardon, pardons going all around. Um, the fact that we're now sort of seeing a, a, a new era on welfare, um, but welfare spending, um, and, and probably health spending as well. Um, I, I, there's all on every single level of government in the presidency, in legislative built offices, maybe not so much with the Supreme Court, but we'll get there eventually, hopefully. Um, there is reasons to have hope, and I, so I, I'm I'm truly optimistic. Well, of course, I mean, it's interesting you mentioned the Supreme Court there, because obviously um, the next oldest Supreme Court member at the moment um, is Stephen Breyer. I think about 83, Yeah, I believe. So, yeah. I mean, it'll be interesting to see whether he is, whether he does step down when he just goes in, lets Biden replace him, put a liberal on the court. Because, yeah. I mean, you wouldn't want to wait for the next Republican presidency and turn it 7-2 conservative, potentially. If, I, if I'm Biden right now, I'm on the phone to Stephen Breyer saying the second Trump is gone, you step down. The second he's out. I don't care if I'm not officially sworn in yet. The second Trump's not in office, step down. I will I will fix all of this. Well, that's, of course, one thing that might, may or may not happen. It'll be interesting to see. Ollie, let's come to you next. Um, obviously, of course, the Trump presidency, Biden is very much the antithesis in the way he's presented himself and indeed in his rhetoric as well. What do you think are going to be the biggest changes from the Trump presidency? Um, it's, it's difficult to, when you say changes, it is. I feel like in the immediate term, it's, there's going to be clearly a different direction in how the US responds to coronavirus. I think one of the executive orders that Biden is apparently going to implement is a mandate on mask wearing. And in addition to that, the relief package that I don't know what the stimulus checks are. I keep seeing numbers on Twitter. I'm not sure which one of them, which ones are accurate. But I feel like in the immediate term, there's going to be a complete change in direction in terms of how the coronavirus, how the US responds to that. And obviously, like Enoch said about rejoining the Paris Climate Accord and ending the ban, presumably, um, that has been in place on predominantly Muslim countries. So I think there is going to be i think there's going to be a lot of executive orders issued within the next you know as soon as biden takes office but i feel i feel like in the long term it's, it's harder to to kind of predict i mean you would like to think that relations are going to improve that, that the us has with countries around the world but i don't see it's not just an easy fix because there's a bit someone who's a bit more sane and you know less vocal on social media back in the white house i mean i feel like biden's experience as vice president for eight years would presumably help that but i think you know it, it's in the immediate term i think there's going to be quite a few changes in terms of the US's strategy but I think in the long term I mean we've a reason to be optimistic but you know I still think we need to be wary as, as of every presidency really I mean Biden presumably will also face a lot of pressure from the progressive wing on the Democratic Party that have rallied around him in the end so I feel like there'll be pressure from them as well to kind of implement the things that he's, he's promised to do so I mean I think it's, it's a big 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 job for him. 
Well, we can talk a little more about progressives in a bit. But first, Adam, moving on from changes now to things that we expect to stay the same. I mean, is there anything that you imagine will stay the same from the Trump presidency? Well, um, yeah, so in initially, uh, there will be changes, obviously, with things like coronavirus, but a lot of some of the other things um, around, say, tax reform, that whilst it will come, it won't happen immediately. There will be those priorities. So we're going to see in the short term, apart from those drastic emergencies that we need uh, to, to bring in, those will uh, probably stay as they are. Uh, in terms of other things that might stay the same, um, I don't think there will be too much of a willingness from the Biden administration to necessarily, again, a bit like with Trump not sending uh, soldiers off to war. Uh, I don't think there will be a tremendous um, emphasis on that uh, from the Biden administration, obviously subject to international events. Um, I think we'll also see a commitment from Biden towards uh the uh, U.S. Space Force that um, Donald Trump actually renamed, uh, like it says that Donald Trump brought in the U.S. Space Force. In fact, he actually renamed another part of the army to do that. But that's besides the point. I do also think that uh, Joe Biden will keep a commitment uh, to that um, within the wider military establishment and actually really focus on the fact that they need to maybe look uh, towards the U.N. for um, uh, sort of international space agreements on how space is utilized um because that is where we could have uh, another conflict potentially coming up with russia if we're not careful i mean i must say i do love with the space force um, i don't know if you've seen the alarming similarities of the space force logo to star trek which I, I, i'm not saying that it may be donald trump's a massive star trek fan or this is just blatant copyright by the US government. But it's very interesting indeed. One thing you didn't mention there, which I, I would have said would have been the first thing I would have thought of when it comes to things staying same, is the approach towards China. And mm. I guess you could say that Donald Trump has built almost a new consensus with China. And particularly in 2020, we've seen with suspicions over how the coronavirus pandemic arose, whether China could have done more to stop um, the spread outside. We saw, we've seen recently an independent report has come out and criticised the WHO and China for ineffective measures to contain the virus and not allowing enough information out of China as was necessary for measures to be in place. We've of course had the trade war that has dominated the Trump presidency, but a lot of Western countries, Australia at the forefront of this arguably, in the UK we've seen of course really speaking out with regards to Hong Kong and also um, the horrific concentration camps holding um, Uyghur Muslims in Xinjiang. Um, yeah, we shouldn't. I should not have forgotten China. Quite frankly, I don't know how I did. Uh, the that is something where I think Donald Trump and Joe Biden share quite a sort of united front on the fact that uh, China, as a country, particularly with what they're doing in Hong Kong and what they're doing to the Uyghur Muslims, um, putting them into concentration camps, is something that uh, no society should be standing for. Um, so uh, we've, we've obviously got the trade war element there. That will continue. I, I do believe that in time, Biden will want to try and reach across to see if he can actually use his soft power to try and make changes. But I don't see that happening for a very long time. And we need to find out what investigations come into the coronavirus pandemic and what uh, China's role 
was um, in, in that. And that could be very damning for the Chinese government and it could really rock relations to a new low. Well, I think that will be a very interesting story over the next four years. And of course, the next four years, it's going to be a lot happening for the Biden presidency, a lot of priorities to sort out. But let's focus now on the first hundred days of the presidency, seen as a real mark of the president. We are very low on time. So, Enoch, let's come to you first. If you're Joe Biden, what are your immediate priorities for the first hundred days? Uh, immediate priorities: vaccinations, vaccinations, vaccinations. That's simple. As simple as that. I feel it was, you know, the new education, education, education. And speaking of someone who would who likes education, 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 Ollie, um, what's your immediate priorities for Joe Biden? Um, much like Enoch, I think uh, for better response to coronavirus, I think I would also join the Paris Climate Accord and end the ban that has been in place on Muslim countries, the travel ban. And that, I mean, obviously it's hard in certain, probably not in the first hundred days, given the ban on in, to entering the US, but maybe that's a more long term thing then. But you see what I'm trying to say, like the, the travel ban that's been in place has been barbaric. I mean, it's very interesting that with the general travel ban because of coronavirus, Donald Trump yeah. said he was going to drop the ban. And yeah. now Joe Biden said he's almost instantaneously going to bring it back again. I don't know if this is some sort of joshing from Trump there. Adam, finally, first hundred days. What are you looking for from Joe Biden? What are his priorities? His priorities have got to be uh, getting the pandemic under control, vaccinations, having a really big rollout of vaccinations. Uh, but he also needs to look to those Americans that are suffering uh, through poverty as a result of losing their jobs, not being able to access work, not being able to access benefits and not being able to access health care. Well, in an hour's time, Joe Biden will become president of the United States. It will be very interesting to see whether this is delivered upon indeed. Well, we will be. I'm back very shortly in the second hour of our show. We're going to be talking about some of the latest news on campus with regards to coronavirus and the SU election. So we're going to be talking as well about um, the potential reduction in universal credit coming very soon, as well as the new leadership of the German Christian Democrats, of course, the party of Angela Merkel. Across campus, online and on 12.51am, this, this, this is your student radio station. Those who know me know that attaining my driver's license has been one of the most fraught processes of my life. Not only, so I took my first test a year and a half ago now, where I managed to hilariously fail with, but I'm not actually hilariously failing is not good. But I failed with five majors, which I think has a certain degree of hilarity in it. But then I again booked my test for January the 6th this year, lo and behold. We're into lockdown. My test gets cancelled. Just my luck. And now I've got to go and potentially redo my theory test again. I mean, not a fan of that. But there was an interesting um, article that was put out um, earlier this week, petition going round, which is basically saying that driving instructors should be allowed to allow people or young drivers onto the road before they pass their test if the driver can sign them off as proficient from their experience and lessons. I mean, I just want to go around the panel quickly and say, get their opinions. Now, they will have to take a driving test eventually. I think it gives a short-term dispensation, but this is what has been going around this petition. Ollie, um, what do you think? 
Well, I'm not going to say that there aren't people who've passed their tests that are terrible drivers because there are plenty of them. But the idea that you can be signed off by your driving instructor, I just think that is the most ridiculous thing I've heard. And well, I would say this year, but that isn't really much of a statement, is it? So I mean, no, I'm totally against that. But maybe I say that in the comfort of someone who has a driving license. So I don't know if I'm kind of more influenced one way or the other on this. If I was in your position, perhaps I'd be a bit more sympathetic. I mean, an interesting thing would be like what if things like insurance, for example. I mean, would I be able to get insurance if that was my situation? Because obviously I know you'd be able to get insurance. I mean, yeah, you'd be getting insurance, but at disgustingly high premiums at the moment. Whereas with me, I don't know. I mean, Adam, what about yourself? What do you make of this? I can't see this coming at all. And quite frankly, it is... um, it's alarming to think that there would be some form of uh, saying, yeah, you don't have to take the test, you can be signed off. We don't know what the governance process is around that. Um, uh, we, we know, I, I, can, I don't know really what the driving lesson situation is now because I passed my test 10 something, 11 years ago, I think it was. Um, so I don't really know how, how it's changed, uh, but I wouldn't have wanted, I, I much prefer the idea that you have a separate pair of eyes to somebody who doesn't know you to give a snapshot view um, it, as, a, a, as an extra safety net. Uh, I, I just don't see how this could be a good idea. I mean, there are many mates that I have back home who I'm genuinely surprised they pass their driving tests. Like there's a sort of big hill area, like a around the back of Portsmouth, the port's down here that's cool, we can drive up there. Many young people go drive up there um, sort of midnight, late at night. We go to Mix Monster Burgers. It's the attraction. It's the place to be in Portsmouth on a Friday night. But we all got there. My mate, 40 miles an hour, very thin road, massive sort of steep cliff, well, not a cliff drop, but a steep hill drop at the side of the road. He'll do it at about 60. And I genuinely fear for my life whenever I'm on that road with him. I mean, Enoch, what do you make of this? I mean, it's not a government proposal. This is a petition. But do you um, agree with Ollie and Adam that it's completely stupid? Most petitions are completely stupid, to be honest. So it's basically, when you say the word petition, I go, okay, it's a bad idea, generally. Um, I think if you have, if, if, in all seriousness, if you think the driving test structure as it works now is flawed or needs to be revised you know, differently, I think you know, that's acceptable. It's always acceptable to question things and say, actually, this needs to be looked at again. And maybe maybe there is a better way. To, maybe it was a better way of doing it than just a bunch of lessons, then one test. Maybe there is a more involved way of teaching how to drive. Like, yeah, safer drivers and better safer drivers is a better test process for people. Um, but I think then that should be explored rather than having something that's like, well, you're not passed your test yet, but here you go. Here's a license in a way. Go away now. It, it doesn't make any sense to me. I don't really understand it. Yeah, of course, the petition is making clear this is a temporary measure whilst there's a massive backlog of tests due to the pandemic. But I feel if it comes in, it may become permanent. That it's the sort of thing that once you give, it's very difficult to take away. Yeah. So I think that it's just it's just very interesting because, of course, if this does pass, I get on the road sooner as a driver. And oh. I don't have the embarrassment of seeing all my mates driving and saying, well, no, I've only done in, one driving in, test in, and got five In that majors. case, I, I don't want to pass. Yeah, absolutely. unacceptable. <laughs> As you can see, Enoch Makungu, as well as being, you know, my main source of advice and support here at Raw, is also just my main source of evil towards me. It's it's a, it's a mutually loving relationship. There we go. Um, of course, sticking with Raw, sticking with Campus now, because we are bringing 
the latest news and views straight out of campus. Yes, this is our section where we're going to talk a little bit about the big stories from Warwick Uni over the week. And I mean, there has been a lot, it's fair to say. Most of which, there's two real big stories we're going to talk about quickly. So let's start off with the academic support, um, support with rent strike, support with mental health. All this bubbled under the coronavirus support that the university offering. Of course, we're back in lockdown at the moment. And there's a lot of calls for the university to offer, particularly when it comes to academics, um, no detriment policies, um, a safety net. Like we had during the summer last years, we have students as well currently on rent strike at the moment and support for the university to um, lower um, rents. They've already done it for the first five weeks, so you don't have to pay rent if you're off if you're on campus. Uh, you are staying off of campus, of course, not the same for off campus properties as well. And that on top of many increased calls for increased funding for mental health services. So Enoch, yep. you have been covering this quite vociferously for the last few weeks for Raw News. So quickly fill us in on the latest. Yeah, so in terms of what the support package will be offered, um, for undergraduates in relation to exams, you can now, if you're an intermediate or final year, or you can you do not progress or graduate, there's September resets available. Um, same with first years, you do not pass core modules. Um, mark distribution across modules will be analyzed against pre-COVID cohorts uh, with module level with module level scaling used when necessary. Um, and, of course, and you now have the right to defer an assessment period. So if you have an assessment in the summer, but you, can, you can't do it, then you can now defer till September. And of course, there's a normal pre-COVID rules there in place. Um, in terms of extensions, um, you have the right to self-certify for a five-day extension on an assignment twice throughout the ac academic year. Um, and uh, as, and sort of, as they sort of told us before, this was before the big announcement, there's been a blanket one-week extension to all coursework throughout January. Um, and if you need extra time, then it's all the all the normal usual stuff comes in after that. In terms of mitigation, it's again, sort of the same stuff as always been before. And for postgraduates, it's, there's not really new stuff, I think, there, apart from maybe um, the right to reset failed modules, um, unless it's a professional practice module or constrained by accreditation, accredit accreditation um, requirement. And as you can see in that last minute, Enoch has just proved why he is the head of news at Raw. Thank you so much for that. Um, Oli, let's come to you first. I mean, that's obviously the latest academic measures in place at the moment. The yeah. big call that students are making is with regards to the safety net. That's the one bigger mission at the moment. And students are saying we need this safety net in place to give us just a little bit more security, given how difficult learning has been this year. Now, there is an opposing argument that says, well, we don't want the safety net in place for the risk it inflates grades, for the risk that it devalues our degrees. I mean, what do you think of that? Well, I mean, I see the concern about grade inflation, but it's only in terms of how many people will graduate, it's just going to be, yeah, okay, if there is grade inflation for two years, then I think that is, is far reasonable given the disruption that a lot of students have, have suffered. I mean, not, not just this year, but last year as well. I mean, we talk about us as second years. We've not actually had really, have we, a proper kind of unique kind of an entire module that's probably been taught without any disruption yet. So I feel like in that sense, it's legitimate for a safety net to be in place. But I think it's not even, I think there's a lot of things that the, the university can't really do about like for example for us we live off campus like people at home may have broadband issues they may share rooms and obviously all that stuff that the uni can't account for means that 
you know they have to be doing some things because otherwise it's just not a level playing field i feel like being at university kind of evens things out as much as possible because everyone obviously has access to the library has the same resources but obviously when we're not there and we're all at home around the country and we all have kind of different kind of you know it's it's then no longer a level playing field so i feel like you know i agree with what the uni's done so far and I think they should be looking to see whether, you know, if things continue, if we stay in lockdown for a lot longer, we're extending the safety net further. OK, Adam, do you agree there with Ollie? Yeah, um, I do think they need to relook at the safety net. Like, and I think some of it's an issue with the Russell Group um, as a whole cohort of universities we've seen. Uh, I think it was Cardiff University, I think, have now backtracked on the safety net. Um, uh, but it's going to take other universities within the Russell Group to actually turn around and say, "Well, hold on a minute, we're not, we're 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 getting pressure on this. Uh, students should be um, raising those concerns through the appropriate uh, channels." Um, and I do think they need to. The, all the universities, if they can if they come out with a clear policy as to how they're going to tackle it, a clear unified approach. I think these any concerns around grade inflation, which, as we know, are going to be for a very minimal period of time, can be addressed. I can because we're looking at what's happening in schools and the fact that we're having teachers um, determining grades uh, for students as well. Um, and there was this whole hoo-ha about, oh, but it's going to cause grade inflation. And in fact, actually, they ended up having to reverse a load of the plans because of um, the uh, utter mess that that came in. So I do think that for undergraduates, they need to look at this. For postgraduates, it is a bit different um, because you can't have the same sort of safety net for postgraduate talk, for example, where they're on a one-year course. Uh, so people who started the course this year don't have that background to then apply it to the safety net um, and for postgraduate research who are completing a thesis again it's completely different but there are methods that they should be looking at uh, such as actually do you allow a certain amount of credits to be dispensated if you have a bad module for example so you can afford to maybe um maybe drop uh, some marks somewhere, having uh, some form of averaging uh, taken in on some other credits. Um, there are options. And I think the university, it, this crisis is not going to get better till we get out of COVID. So we shouldn't be dumping on students. We need to be thinking, well, actually, how do we make it as safe and as easy as possible without losing the academic rigour? And I think there is a solution to be found. OK, that's obviously the big news that's been on safety nets on education. I mean, there's a lot that we imagine will be coming in the next few weeks, whether there is no safety net and more calls for that, or maybe there is some movement. We will be following that. Now, big news from last week with regards to the spring elections this year. Of course, spring elections, one of the most, a very fun week for many of the candidates that I know that take part, and a week where I think many students wrap themselves up in the world of student politics. But there's been a big announcement with regards to how students can stand. Now, in the past, Students haven't been allowed to stand on slate. So uh, sort of a multiple candidates standing under one label, um, running for different positions, of course. But in the past, people have had to have separate teams, no support and no working with each other. That was, of course, for disqualification. Now, that has changed this year. Now, um, Akos Wasefa, the um, Democracy and Development Officer, put this Facebook post out earlier. I'm just going to read it to you now. This is the SU's reasoning behind changing the policy. So, she says, the Democracy and Development Officer is in charge of running SU elections, including making the final decision about things like slates and society endorsements. When students vote for their preferred DDO candidate, they are aware that this officer will shape SU elections. This year, I have decided to allow both slates and society endorsements. I understand that the opinion on slates is rather split, so I consulted with the whole officer team 
to gather as much of their concerns as possible and put mitigations in place accordingly. Slates always emerge during elections, whether or not they have been explicitly allowed by the SU. There are unofficial slates every year. I feel that when slates are unnamed, the right mitigations cannot be put in place to offset the negative impact these unofficial slates might have had on independent candidates. I'm a strong advocate for slates as I feel that they promote student trust during elections and throughout officer terms. When I ran in the spring elections last year, many students expressed that they felt confused and bombarded by the sheer number of manifestos, many with very similar promises. Therefore, they didn't know who to trust and who was best to vote for. Slates have been used to clearly define a group's core values and the records of its members in regards to any previous campaigning experience, for example, in campaigning. Voters can see which of these slates best aligns with their core values when they make a decision about who to vote for. In order to mitigate concerns about slates through social media and other forms of student communication, we have emphasized that these slates do not have to be political and have encouraged groups of friends to run together and endorse each other as this also constitutes a slate. Officers who ran independently during the last spring elections will be available to provide advice and support for those not running in a slate, including an SU event called Be the Independent Candidate. Moreover, slates will relieve less campaign funding per candidate than those running independently. Okay, so that is what Akosua has said with regards to slates. Now, Enoch, um, I think we can say, you know, you were the new deputy last year, you were covering the elections, and Akosua makes the point that slates were unofficially running last year. I mean, what, what do you think? Do you think that it's right that slates and endorsements are running this year? Um, I, I think... She really, honestly, I, I was fully against slates when they were first announced. I think Akosha's made some several good points, um, but I am still against slates. I, I think the point of student politics is that it, there is a sense of independence there. Obviously, people are going to get together in groups and coordinate. The correct response there is not to go, all right, fine, do what you want. The correct response is to crack down on it. The problem we had last year was despite several people complaining to the head of democracy office about issues, not, en not enough steps were taken actually discipline people and make sure the rules were followed. Um, the answer to that is not then say, let's throw out the rule book and then we can do what they want. The answer is, let's defend the rules we set down for ourselves. Um, I think this, the new slates policy, I, all in all, I don't think the slates policy is gonna be the biggest deal. I think something that's far more impactful though, is gonna be the student endorsement policy. And I think that'll produce some very interesting results this election. Well, of course, in the past, um, students have independently been allowed to sort of advocate who they were voting for, but not as part of a society or anything like that. It's very much them as an individual. Ollie, let's come to you now. I mean, do you agree with Enoch there that fundamentally there should have been greater enforcement of the rules than just getting rid of the rule book altogether? And do you think there are unintended consequences to this? I think it's difficult because we all want to say in an ideal world, you know, slates don't exist and the SU is run purely based on, you know, students' interests. But I just think it's very, very difficult to remove that because, I mean, it's inevitable that people are going to collude with others that they, you know, ideologically align with. I feel like that's natural. I feel like no, no kind of, I don't see how, what, like, no number of complaints, I think, would, you know, stop people from, from doing that. So, I mean, I think... As you say, you know, you raise a lot of good points, but I, I just I feel like it's really difficult to ban them indefinitely. I just I don't think you can. So effectively having some form of formal procedure in place will make it a lot better. Um, yeah, I, th I think so. But, you know, it's idealistic if you think we can get rid of slates because they've always existed and they always will do, in my opinion. OK, Adam, obviously you're a postgrad, so you um, didn't come from Warwick. You've not experienced a Warwick election. 
But I mean, in terms of where you were previously, I mean, were there slates running at your pre where you did your undergrad degree? Um, and if not, what do you just think about the slates in general? Yeah, so we did have um, slates at, uh, I was at De Montfort uh, back in 2011. Um, we did have slates, but it wasn't, uh, it, it wasn't always a big thing. You, you'd, you'd have one group of students who you could tell were in a slate, but then most students would be independent. So I suppose I was quite used to that. And when I ran for the um, uh, elections to be the NUS representative at uh, DMU, um, I, I didn't run on a slate, but I did uh, benefit from having other candidates who were going out campaigning for the full-time officer roles, um, being able to put forward my name as saying that, and they're supporting me as uh, the the NUS uh, representative. So uh, there was a benefit to that. Um, but I do agree that there are quite a number of concerns around actually how does this um, all work? How do we ensure that it's regulated fairly? I do fear for the independent voice uh, coming out of this because I think it's really important in a student union uh, to reflect all the voices of the student union, not just to reflect one one grouping, one side or the other. Um, so I know as a voter, I deliberately will not vote for an entire slate of candidates. I will deli I will pick maybe somebody from a slate, but if I see lots of people on a slate, I will not. Uh, you can almost guarantee that I probably will not pass a vote for. All those people. As for society endorsements, I just question how that is going to be done fairly to reflect the views of the society. Will there be proper uh, provisions for votes on the society, or will it just be society exec making a decision based on who, whether or not it's their mate who's running? Well, I think that will be very interesting to see how that election comes forward. Of course, spring elections week seven this term. I believe you have until week five to nominate yourself well that is it for the latest news straight out of campus we'll be bringing this back again next week talking about what happens in the next seven days but we'll be moving on now to talking about the potential scrapping of the 20 pound universal credit uplift but first this music welcome back to another week of psychedemics hello everybody you're listening to the vinnie show you are listening to rockstar i'm backstage with cassper we're starting to get up hello guys hello, hello. Hello. there's a team spirit going oh. on behind it you're all rooting for each other oh yeah good job that's it yeah i just think the style that marvel has made has just mm. put them like way above speech you must get to the mass and stats building using three different modes of transport oh my god there's a trolley <laughs> really all about like educating networking and sharing our stories i think the su has a really uh, important role in engaging students with politics news good evening and welcome to the big decision ben and larissa tied this is your student radio station this is raw 1251 am Across campus, online, and on 12:51 a.m. This, this, this is your student radio station. We've started to see, obviously, a lot of talk on the economic recovery from coronavirus, and that has been. I guess when we're moving on from vaccinations, that's going to be the real long term is the economic impact. And we started to see in the last week, particularly from the Treasury, a few plans coming out, suggesting ways by which the UK can start paying itself or paying its way out of the pandemic. And one of the things that has been proposed um, or we or been mooted, a lot of these are mooted plans that could be in the March budget. Of course, when we know it's going to be in the March budget, 
we can talk a lot more about that. But one of the mooted plans that's come out in the last week is the £20 universal credit uplift. Um, this was given to families at the start of the pandemic, an extra £20 on top of their monthly corona, um, universal, weekly universal credit payments. And this basically has enabled more people to be able to get through um, lockdown with slightly more relative ease. It's provided an extra £1,040 to families claiming universal credit every week. Now, it's believed that Rishi Sunak is seeking to scrap this, replace it with either a £500, potentially a £1,000 one-off payment. There are fears from many within the Conservative Party that this, if this is maintained, it could become a permanent measure that the government can't afford. Before, it's believed to cost about £6 billion keeping um, the £20 universal credit uplift in for a year. But there are many, including those within the Tory cabinet and Tory backbenchers, including those from the Northern Research Group, who are saying that this, at this time in the pandemic, where many people are coming from, you know, a heavily economically ruinous lockdown, this is a lifesaver for many families and it needs to be kept in place. Well, this has been a hot topic of debate. The point was given an opposition day debate yesterday in Parliament. And Quite interestingly, um, the Conservatives tried to sweep it under the rug almost as a sort of an emotive debate that wasn't really getting to the issue and just seeking to provoke reactions against Conservative MPs. I want to hear my guest's opinion on that. But Ollie, let's start with you first. I mean, firstly, on that point from the Conservative Party, but also in general, what do you think about this mooted scrapping of the £20 universal credit uplift? Well, I mean, first of all, regarding you know the parliamentary process or the frustration amongst Tory MPs from it, it is a bit confusing because I mean the opposition always gets you know opportunities to have opposition day debates, and they seem to be complaining that Labour has somehow has chosen a really emotive issue, and you just think, well, I mean, what where would you draw the line with that? Like, are, you, are they suggesting that they can only talk about like boring things in opposition day debates? So obviously going to pick stuff which is going to get headlines and make the government look bad. They would do exactly the same in the other, you know, in that position. And that's just, you know, part and parcel of politics, I guess. But, I mean, on the wider point of universal credit, I feel like it absolutely should be maintained. I mean, it's callous for them want to cut it now. And also the economic argument behind it, I think, is ludicrous anyway, because, I mean, it's a drop in the ocean given what the government has given some, the sums of money the government has spent in the last 12 months, but also where, where it's a lot, it's been wasted. I mean, you look at the cost of test and trace and things, and you think, you know, that was fine, or it's not fine, but, you know, they've wasted that, yet they now are trying to take £20 away from, you know, the poorest families. And also, the lowest uh, lowest paid in society obviously have a greater proportion to spend anyway. So, I mean, cutting that itself will stifle demand in the economy at a time when we would want it to be increasing. So, I mean, I think it's, it's a terrible idea. It's going to look awful. But I mean, you know, it's, I just think there's there's better ways of saving money, I think, than trying to cut universal credit at arguably the, the most brutal time of the pandemic. Well, we'll come on to these other measures that have been mooted by the Treasury very shortly. But Enoch, um, let's come to you first, because I guess Ollie makes a the point there. Well, the government have spent a lot of money, test and trace being one thing we're seeing now on the vaccination programme as well. The government is spending all this money that this is almost just a drop in the ocean, yet as Rishi Sunak has been trying to point out, as we're coming out of the pandemic, we're starting to return to more normal times. And ultimately, we're going to have to pay for a lot of the measures that we've had to put in place. And so something like this, which you can't raise through increasing everyone's income tax by one by just one P, is this something that may be necessary, even if it isn't perhaps not morally right? I, I think the question we need to ask ourselves is, 
once we're all vaccinated and we can start reopening the economy again, what position do we want to be in as a country? Do you want to be in a position where people have, they've been through a pandemic, it's been difficult, but they have money, they have savings, they can go forward and they can actually they can start spending money again and get the economy back up and running again? Or a position where families have, they've been forced to go strip down to bare essentials. There's not a lot of money left in the economy in their particular families. Many people have lost jobs because their business is shut down. I think that, that's really the choice we're facing now. There's treasury support the economy as much as it can until we can reopen. Or there's treasury saying, oh, well, them's the breaks. Figure out on your own once everything reopens. And I think this is all the debate we've been having basically ever since Eat Out to Help Out. And the, the question is, this is all sort of reiteration of that same, same topic. Can the, economy, can the economy afford us not to raise universal credit right now? Can we afford as a people to say, actually, we're not going to help support you economically at a time when, you know, people's livelihoods have basically been thrown away? Well, I, it, again, it's a very interesting point you put forward there because Rishi Sunak has been very clear, certainly at least privately, that growth is the main point going forward. And I mean, there's a lot of debates about how that growth should be achieved, whether you should keep taxes low, for example, incentivize spending and investment in businesses or whether you do that solution with the universal credit where you keep people's disposable incomes as high through government payments. I mean, Adam, what do you make of this? Because, of course, there are mooted alternatives that this could be a simple one-off cash payment if it's not through universal credit. What do you think of this? I think, so you said it earlier about um, the fact there were complaints that the Labour Labour opposition motion was um, emotive. And quite frankly, that is right. It is emotive because we're looking at another 820,000 children going into poverty. We're looking at poverty rising overall from 21% to 23%. Um, I think it is a really big mistake to be penalising those people that are already some of the worst hit in our society um, and to actually be penalising future generations, could we we will be shooting ourselves in the foot as a country if we do this. Yes, there may be other measures. Um, uh, we're hearing them mooted quietly. Quite frankly, they shouldn't be mooted quietly. They should be out there for us to for, for us to scrutinise, for us to understand, um, because until this pandemic is behind us uh, and we can get the economy moving again, we shouldn't be cutting our nose off to spite our face. Well, I mean, there's a lot of all these measures are mooted at the moment, but let's just quickly talk about a couple of other things that have been suggested by the Treasury. So, Ollie, let's come to you first. Um, There are rumours Rishi Sunak is going to increase corporation tax. And this is something that the government have been consistently said that they were trying not to do. They said particularly post-Brexit it's the last thing we need um, for investment in businesses post-Brexit. But also a lot of a belief that keeping taxes low at this time it's essential for people to have as much disposable income as possible and for businesses to invest in being able to get out of the pandemic and the measures that they need to stay afloat. I mean, do you think tax rises at this time are the best solution or we should keep taxes low? I think it's difficult because obviously tax rises from an economic perspective now are it's a ludicrous argument. And as you've all said, like the economy needs to grow and raising taxes isn't going to do that. But obviously you have to look at the political implications for it. And you would think that, you know, they would want to raise taxes, obviously, at the earliest point. Well, I mean, so the earliest point within the electoral cycle as far away from the next election as possible. So you can see why they're kind of considering it. But I think the economic arguments behind it mean that I just don't see how they can do it. I mean, the corporation tax is an interesting one because I think since 20 
tenant was lowered, but as a result of it being lowered, it's actually generated more revenue. So, and that's what the Tories have spent the last decade arguing. They've said, well, we've like, yeah, we have lowered corporation tax, but we've raised more than say the Labour government did in their final years. So, I mean, they will be going against everything they've argued for the past few years. But I mean, you know, they seem to have washed their hands of austerity as well. So it wouldn't surprise me if they go and increase corporation tax despite having argued against such a notion for the past several years. It's a, very it Laffer, it's a very Laffer curve argument, keeping exactly. taxes low but keeping profits up. Yeah, there's uh, a point at which it, it, by increasing them, it actually makes revenue fall. But I mean, it, it's where the, the government needs to find that lowest point on the curve and it, you want on the job, I guess. Well, I think that's a, some, some civil servant in the Treasury right now, I'm sure will be getting their heads completely muddled through this. Um, Adam, some, and something else has been proposed although quite controversial amongst a lot of the traditional conservative base. Um, so the abolition of stamp duty and council tax, replacing this with a property tax based upon the revaluation of property. I mean, what do you think to this? It's said that it will reduce the amount of taxes paid in the north, but increase taxes based upon more expensive properties in the south. It's levelling up, but it is also potentially seen as a wealth tax that could hit people that are asset rich, but maybe not income rich. Yeah, and that is a big issue with that. We don't yet know what the rate of increase will be in areas where it is a um, a, 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 a better off area in terms of property, but um, asset uh, in terms of what people actually have in their pocket, money in their pocket is already uh, going to be low. So until we see more of the detail on that, um, it does feel like a rather risky solution although we do need to look at actually how do we ensure that those people who are being penalized by massive increases in council tax how do we get that right it's a, it's a sticky situation well i think that is a sticky situation it's difficult for everyone at the moment i think trying to come up with economic policy of course the march budget will be the interesting point there enoch just one last thing quickly going back to welfare in general obviously there's been a lot of the debates on universal credit and free school meals have been a real sticking point for the government recently. Um, Stephen Bush in The New Statesman has said that welfare could become what immigration was for New Labour, the issue where they feel they can't talk about it, but they have to talk about it, and ultimately what leads to the government's downfall. Do you think welfare is going to be that issue for this Conservative government? Well, if you remember back to, I know it's hard, but remember back to 2016, 2015, um, when this government, just Conservative government was first inaugurated, um, welfare was the big issue. Um, before Brexit really started heating up, they were getting slammed on tax credits, they were getting slammed on the fact they were, you know, the Panama Papers meant that the super rich would get hiding their money away while people starved. Um, people started talking about austerities killing people. Um, there were sort of reports coming out about that sort of every other week. Um, I think what we're seeing now is not some sort of new invention, it's the restoration of the norm. The government had made, the government thought they could say this sort of Brexit, but what they're really realizing is they just brought back all their own issues. Um, so hopefully they figure out the way to fix it is uh, by raising welfare, um, as I think they should do. But um, if not, well, you know, we'll see. Well, we will see indeed the March budget, of course. We'll be following any news that comes from that. And of course, when it comes out, I will try and put my best economist hat on to try and lead a debate through that. I'm sure that will probably be the biggest bit of humour this term, just watching me failing over economics. I'm sure something we can definitely look forward to when that comes. Um, we'll be back talking about... Um, a leadership election in Germany and the potential most post-Merkel period very soon. But first, 
this. Looking for a bite to eat at the Warwick SU? Daily specials and fine dining experience at the brand new Canopy. Karaoke, pub grub and lager on tap at the Dirty Duck. Salad and sarnies to go in the bread oven. Or a latte link up at Curiosity. There's something to suit any taste and any budget. And if you've got a big night ahead of the copper room, start it right at T-Bar. With speciality cocktails. Best stock prices. And our expertly stock bar overlooking the piazza. At Warwick SU Outlets, there's something to satisfy every taste. Your breakfast, the feel-good way to start your day. This is Breakfast Radio for Warwick students, by Warwick students. Playing the feel-good hits and brightening up your morning. Plus, we have the best gaps, games and giveaways to freshen up your stagecoach commute. Listen to Raw Breakfast every day from 8am. Across campus, online and on 12.51am. This, this, this is your student radio station. We're coming to the last topic of our first show back on the radio this term. So I feel it's time now we've been talking about America. We've been talking about the UK. Let's move on now to Germany. Now, um, the CDU, the party of Angela Merkel, has appointed a new leader at the weekend. It appointed Armin Laschet, very much seen as a moderate within the party. Someone very much seen to follow a lot of Angela Merkel's policies and someone very much seen to follow her style as well. Of course, Angela Merkel's been Chancellor of Germany now for 16 years, but is stepping down with an election due in Germany at the end of the year. Now, this is not to say that Armin Laschet will definitely be the CDU's choice for Chancellor, but he is the very much the likely candidate that they'll put forward. And we expect that, um, as I said, he will be not only the CDU candidate for Chancellor, but the likely Chancellor as well, the CDU are polling about, I believe, 13 points ahead of their nearest opposition, the Green Party in Germany at the moment, with the current likely outcome, a CDU-Green coalition, seeming from what we get from polls at the moment. I mean, obviously, the German election will be something we will follow because it has a lot of wide implications, not just for Germany, but also in Europe, here in the UK, and global relations as well. So, Enoch, let's start off with you then. I mean, what is the first reactions, I guess, to Armin Laschet becoming Chancellor? I mean, how we say he's very much a continuation of Merkel. How much of a continuation is he? Where does he differ, perhaps, from Angela Merkel? Um, well, the biggest area he differs from Angela Merkel, probably one of the most con- consequential ones, is he's a, he's a big old fan of our, our friend in the, the, the East, Vermeer Putin. Um, Armin Laschet has been frequently accused of being far too soft on Putin's foreign policy. And it's, um, I, hate, I always hate saying this about political figures, but he's tweeted at times his support for both Putin and President Assad and the wars they're fighting in, in, in Syria and the Middle East. Um, but I think that's going to be the biggest difference, because Angela Merkel's always on Europe's hard lines on Putin. She was seen as the wall um, between him and Western Europe and European Union. Um, so the, her departing influence, I think it's going to be very interesting to see how that impacts, especially weakening relations with America as they are now. Um, the, other, the other sort of big remarkable thing I would say, I, this actually... He's got, I think it's not so much a difference of a policy, but a difference of presence. Um, I do not see him being such an impacting figure on the European Union. While he's still definitely very much pro-integration, I simply don't think he has sort of the state the stature Merkel, Merkel brings with her. And that's gonna that's gonna impact policymaking in the European Union for a while. That's something which isn't to watch out for. Well, I mean, of course, with regards to EU, obviously Brexit this year has taken out the third biggest power in terms of well. And economically, the third, well, yeah, at the third biggest power in the EU, economically, perhaps militarily the biggest power, but in the UK, but certainly Germany and France have been seen under Merkel and Macron to really have this increasingly unified 
approach within Europe and really establish themselves as setting the tone for closer integration. I mean, Oli, what, what do you think to that with regards to the EU specifically? I mean, do you think this is more powerful President Macron in setting a more integrationist tone within Europe? I mean, Pat, I mean, I'm, I'm not so sure. I don't know too much about that, but I think he probably is doing. I mean, Macron's probably just stamping his kind of authority on the EU. Maybe he's trying to get in there now. Now Angela Merkel's, you know, departing, or whether he wants to be kind of the new kind of face of the European Union that she has been for so many years, perhaps. Well, of course, Emmanuel Macron has an election in France in May 2022, and that in itself is not entirely certain. Of course, French politics has been incredibly turbulent in the sense it's not gone with the mainstream. Of course, in the last election, both um, the Republicans and the Socialists, the two main parties in France, didn't have candidates in the final round. It was um, Macron, of course, from a party established pretty much in the months before the election, and, of course, Marine Le Pen of the Front National. Um, Adam, so obviously talk a bit about the EU there, but um, there's a lot of concern coming from, from many commentators here in the UK about Armin Lachette's stance towards not just Russia, but China. And, of course, Germany has been criticised a lot by the EU, by the United States, by the UK, for their dealings with Russia. Of course, there's the Nord Stream 2 pipeline that nearly led to sanctions from the Trump administration, a direct gas pipeline coming, I believe, from, I think from Kaliningrad or one of the other Russian states in the border down into northern Germany. And also Germany's engagement with China has been seen to have been the greatest amongst the West, particularly their involvement in the Belt and Road Initiative, something that has been criticised for effectively being Chinese imperialism. I mean, what do you say to that, Adam? Do you think that this is concerning, especially given the toughening stances that the West has taken in the last decades, not only towards Russia, but increasingly towards China as well. It is concerning, um, particularly in terms of China. Uh, we've still got a lot to see about China and their role in various things to do with the pandemic um, and their wider stance towards Hong Kong um, being a big issue. And given the fact that uh, Germany and the UK we're, we're allies, and the fact that um, we had an agreement with China over Hong Kong that was broken. Uh, so there should be some support from our allies on that. On Russia, it's a, it's a complicated issue because um, uh, Armin Lachette, uh, it's been argued that one of the reasons he's held some of those views around Russia uh, was because when he was a state governor, they were heavily dependent on Russian business. Um, and as such, it's kind of, well, you don't, uh, you try not to mess it up too much, whereas it has been said that he still favours some of the same sort of tough stance that Angela Merkel has had there. But some of it, we're going to have to wait and see. And these comments uh, uh, for Mr Lachette are incredibly damaging, particularly the ones with um, the fact that he said there wasn't maybe enough evidence over the Skripal poisoning in uh, the UK and over uh, dealings, um, uh, his comments around President Assad and American imperialism uh, over in the Middle East. So there are a lot of very alarming questions that he maybe needs to address. Let's bring this back to the UK quickly. And Enoch, um, Armin Lachette's main candidate, or the person who was expected to win was a guy called Friedrich Merz, who was seen very much to be on the right of the CDU. And I guess if Armin Lachette was aiming towards the centre, perhaps the Free Democrat Party and some of their voters, um, Friedrich Merz was seen to try and take the party back towards a more sort of conservative route, potentially appeal to those who got disenfranchised and what started voting for the AFD. 
Um, of course, that's the new far-right party that's increasingly gained power in Germany. But Friedrich Merz had quite a pro-Atlanticist, quite Eurosceptic attitude that could... Could that have been more beneficial to the UK? I mean, do you think that Armin Lachette was the best choice in terms of the UK? Or do you think someone like Friedrich Mertz might have been a better choice? Um, I don't think Friedrich Mertz would have... It's, I mean, this, we're still on question of degree here. Um, we now have a deal trade with the EU, so it's now in our benefit that they do well so we can do well with them. Um, we are European partners, as they say. Um, uh, Mertz, Mertz's ideas, I don't think they would have been so much as allying with Britain and benefiting us. I think we are better off in a Germany like in a wide, sort of understandable European Union that we can sort of negotiate purely with on, on those terms rather than a sort of wild Germany in a destabilised Europe. I think that's probably for the best for us that that's true. Well, I think it'll be interesting to see, of course, we have the election at the end of the year. Expectation is Armin Lachette becomes a CDU nominee for Chancellor and most likely Chancellor. So It'll be interesting to see the next four years, perhaps in German politics, the impact as well of that on Europe as well. I think there is a lot of questions there and we will be leaving you with those questions unanswered because sadly that is all the time that we have today. Um, thank you so much for tuning in. It's great to be back on Raw 1251 AM and great to have had your company for the last couple of hours, indeed the last two hours of Donald Trump's presidency. And indeed, as we come to the end of the presidency of Donald Trump, a bit of, some will say a bit of optimism with regards to the start of the Biden presidency. But I'd like to reflect on a different optimism. Of course, this is going to be a very difficult start to 2021 at the moment. And I just wanted to really say, obviously, if you are struggling right now, please do speak out. Please do seek help. We're all, we're all going through a difficult time at the moment. But it's important that you are able to do that, that you can speak out. And in the end, we'll get through this. We will come past coronavirus. And we will be back to normal again. Things can only get better. See you next week.